0: Luke chapter 14, verse 1. And it reads thus. One, one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who, who, had, who had dropsy. Which sounds uncomfortable, but it means swollen limbs. Okay? So you're wondering. Okay. And Jesus responded... It's like he doesn't care who he's surrounded by. He's in the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, and he's not just a Pharisee, he's a ruler of the Pharisees. And it says in chapter 14, verse 1, that they were watching him carefully. They had their collective eyes on him, and these weren't eyes of adulation or friendship. These were probably eyes of suspicion. This wasn't some relaxed time talking about the ball game. This was tense. And I imagine, or I don't imagine, that there was any background jazz music playing in this party. I imagine it was silent and it was awkward. And all you could hear was the clinking of utensils against the plates and the occasional awkward cough. And they're set around this this, this table. And probably this table would have been low to the ground, and there might not have been any chairs and If this is the scenario, then the people would have sat on the floor, and they would have leant in probably on one elbow. They were reclining at the table, and just before this meal begins, a man suffering from dropsy, which I met, which means that his, his limbs is the joints are swollen from too much fluid, comes in and Jesus makes a pointed remark to the Pharisees, he then heals him on the Sabbath which was bad because it constituted work, and then he sends them away. This is where the awkward silence happened. And into the midst of that silence, Jesus tells a story. Let's look at verse 7. Oh, sorry, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." So in verse 1 of chapter 14, we've been informed that the people who gathered were watching Jesus carefully. But then in verse 7, we also see that Jesus was watching them carefully. Two can play at that game. And as he was observing, what did he notice? Verse 7, he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Simply put, they were seeking out the best seats. They were choosing the place of honor. In the, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 25, verse 6, it says this. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. But that's not what these people were doing in this party. Instead, each person looked at himself... And then he looked at the people around him and in the privacy of their own hearts, each person, what they did is they got out the price tag guns and they mentally went around the room, labelling how much each person was worth. Of course, everyone considered themselves the most expensive, the most worthy. And so they tried to place themselves at the head of the table It gets a bit complicated, however, when you have a room full of proud people each up-pricing themselves and down-pricing everyone else. Because Because if the price tag that you place on me is different to the price tag I place on myself, and if the price tag I place on you is different to the price tag that you place on yourself, then things get complicated. So I imagine there was some sort of a polite, mad rush for the top of the table. It, it's, it's a bit like those group exercises where you have to put yourselves in order according to age or height or alphabet. And there's, there's chaos for a few moments, and then order resumes. And if you're ordering yourselves according to height, then you have all the tallies strutting around complacent, Then you've got all the shorties trying to stand on their tiptoes or to puff up their hair to try to make themselves as tall as possible. Now, imagine if I said to you right now, okay, we're going to put ourselves in order. And you begin to get excited because you enjoy games that help make sense of the world. And then I said to you, we're going to put ourselves in order according to value. The least valuable of you will stand on the left, and the most valuable of you will stand on the right. Everyone else, order yourselves accordingly in between. How would we even begin? Seriously, just think about it. Imagine if you were taking part in this exercise and you were standing next to someone and you had to decide if you were more or less valuable than them. And probably most of us would be tempted to place ourselves at the bottom of the list over on the left hand side but not everyone can be the least valuable at least not in this game there has to be one person who is the least valuable and in the midst of fighting for the least valuable place you start to see one person who didn't get that you know we're in a church and we're all Christians and so we should be humble we should all be going to the left but this person doesn't understand that and so you watch them as they start to make their way to the right of the line. I'm sorry, my, stage, my, my right is your left, just please do the inversion in your head. And so, the, so this person starts to make their way to the right of the line, to the most valuable spot. And you think in, in the quiet of your own pious heart, Jesus still needs to do some work in that person's life. But then you start to protest. Hey, who does this person think they are? I know that last week I saw them and they were gossiping. I saw them drunk in town the month earlier and they sleep around. They're not that valuable. They're cheap. And before you know it, your feet have left the ground. And you start floating over to the right. You have no control over it. Your limbs are flailing. And you protest, but still you float over to the right. Then you land gently at the end of the line on the most valuable side. You are mortified. You look at the people looking at you. And you want to tell them that you didn't mean to move yourself. You you just did. And you see the judgment in their eyes. And then you start to see them floating over to the right as well. And you see the horrified look in their eyes that was just in your eyes as they realize what's happening. You see them glance around quickly to see who's noticed. Of course, everyone's noticed. Let's turn to Luke chapter 22, verse 24. Luke 22, verse 24. It says this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Can you imagine being in this conversation as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he, which is Jesus, said to them, The king of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves." There was this guy called, or there is this guy called William Farley who said this here is, is the great paradox. The proud man thinks he is humble, but the humble man thinks he is proud. The humble man sees his arrogance, he sees it clearly, and as a result, he aggressively pursues a life of humility, but he doesn't think of himself as humble. The proud man is completely unaware of his pride. Of all men, he is convinced that he is the most humble. We can't help it. Most of us cannot help overvaluing ourselves. We love to up-price ourselves. It's like we don't even try. We just float over to the right. We automatically move to the most valuable spot. Pride just seems to ooze out of us. If we were to see ourselves in this account at the Pharisee's house, we would like to imagine that we would humbly sit at the bottom of the table with a saintly contented look on our face and perhaps a little bit of a halo on our head. But the the reality is is that we would most likely have been caught up with the self-promotion and the jockeying for position along with everyone else. We're prouder than we think. Just this past week, I had someone come to me and suggest a change in the church. And I will not tell you how quickly my defences went up. What change are you talking about? Who's been talking to you? And no matter how much I tried to mask my hurt ego, I couldn't. And no matter how much I tried to sound big-hearted, I only succeeded in coming across as small-minded I could hear myself, and I didn't like what I was hearing, but it was like I couldn't stop it. I knew I was acting like a child, and I suspect that they did as well. So I did the only thing I could do in that situation. I stopped myself. I took a breath, and I apologized for being really defensive. I stopped trying to dig myself out of this hole, and I admitted that I was being a bit of an idiot. Now, back to this incident in Luke chapter 22 with this argument about who is the greatest. Well, if, if we were there, we'd like to think that we would be the ones who said, guys, 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 we shouldn't be speaking like this about who's the greatest. This isn't how followers of Christ should be thinking, but probably we would have been there up with the rest of them arguing why we were the best. Of course, we wouldn't have been so obvious. We would have cloaked our pride in the language of humility, We'd have said things like, oh, it's so tiresome to be woken up by Jesus, to spend time alone with him in prayer in the morning. I don't know why he singles me out, but I envy you guys your sleep. I wish he wouldn't keep sharing his innermost thoughts with me. Such a burden. Or maybe, yeah, I walked again on water last week. Do you know how much of a pain it is to get on the sand with wet feet and then have to clean it off afterwards? Or maybe we'd have said, seriously, I've got to stop healing people. (laughs) After helping that blind man see yesterday, I just couldn't get a moment's peace with people wanting to worship me. And I was like, hey, I'm not Jesus. (laughs) If you're anything like the good Christian I am, we hide our pride behind a mask of humility. But no one's convinced. Least of all, God. You would think that pastors would be generally humble and Christ-like, but when we get together, it's not long before we're sizing each other up. So, what church do you pastor at? Okay, cool. How many people attend? And what is that except trying to size ourselves up against each other to really determine how valuable our church is and therefore to determine how valuable we are? And so so in this incident, in Luke 22, Jesus turns things over on his disciples by saying in verse 26, Let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Pastor Tim Keller says this, Up until the 20th century... Traditional cultures, and this is still true of most cultures in this world, always believed that too high a view of yourself was the root of all evil in the world. But our belief today, and it's rooted in everything, is that people misbehave for the lack of self-esteem. It's because they have too low a view of themselves. And he goes on to say, people used to think it was because they had too high a view of themselves and had too much self-esteem. Now we say it because we have too little self-esteem. So which of these is our real problem? Is it too much self-esteem or is it too little self-esteem? Well, what Keller goes on to propose is that what we need is not more self-esteem or less self-esteem. What we need is gospel humility, or to put it another way, what we need is the freedom of self-forgetfulness. But we cannot forget ourselves by focusing on forgetting ourselves. That will never work. In fact, let's try it right now, for 30 seconds. And I'm going to coach you as a good pastor, I'm going to coach you through this exercise, okay? So the aim is to stop thinking about yourself for 30 seconds. Okay, ready, let's go. Stop thinking about yourself. Stop thinking about yourself. Stop thinking about yourself. Seriously, forget yourself. Just stop it. Stop thinking about yourself, think about something else. If you've got you in your mind, stop thinking about yourself. If you have that picture of your face in your mind right now, get it out of your mind. The goal is to stop thinking about yourself. Forget yourself. As I've shown you in this amazingly scientific example, <laughs> That we cannot forget ourselves by trying to forget ourselves. We cannot get humility by pursuing humility. We can only forget ourselves by reorientating our focus outwards. Let me explain. If you fill your mind with thoughts of quitting smoking, you will never quit smoking. The best way to quit smoking is to forget about quitting smoking, do something else. You can only quit thinking vengeful thoughts by reorientating your mind outwards and filling your mind with something else. I cannot quit thinking about vengeance by trying to stop thinking about vengeance. Instead, I need to try and do something else. You cannot stop thinking lustful thoughts by trying to stop thinking about lustful thoughts. Instead you, you need to reorientate your mind and start thinking about something else, get your attention on something else. Do something else. Why else is it that temptation usually assails us when we're relaxing, when we're having downtime? Why are we rarely overwhelmed by temptation when we're working hard on the construction site, or when we're trying to finish a book for homework, or when we're trying to do the laundry, or when we're reading a proposal, when we're doing home renovations, or when we're filing our taxes, or attempting to meet an important An important deadline. Because we are busy. Our lives are full. And sin does not thrive in a life that's full. Sin thrives in the empty spaces, in the quiet spaces, in the lazy spaces. Pride thrives in those places as well. That's not to say that we should not rest. But it is to say that, is, that a life that is full in a healthy way eliminates those lonely places where sin is so often found. Which is why the answer to pride is not to eradicate pride, because that just leaves a space that is too easily filled by more sin. The answer to pride is to focus on something better, or someone who is better. The answer to pride is to forget yourself. The answer to pride is to remember others. Matthew 12 verse 43 paints a powerful picture of the danger that we face when we try to rid ourselves of the evil in our lives without replacing the whole that remains with something good and pure. Matthew 12 43 says this, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my home from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order then it goes and brings with it seven more spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there and the last state of that person is worse than the first that's such a key phrase the last state of that person who has just got rid of the evil is worse than it was at first and so we can never get rid of pride by trying to get rid of pride never never It's absolutely impossible. It's like trying to empty the water out of a bucket by pouring more water in. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. So if we go back to this passage where Jesus tells the disciples off for fighting among themselves about who is the greatest, Jesus does not say, the greatest among you is the humblest. No. He says, the greatest among you is the one who serves. And serving is an action. It's something we can do. And it's in the doing of something that we start to forget ourselves. And this is the start of humility. Humility does not come from seeking humility. Humility comes from serving others. And it doesn't happen instantaneously. But over time, as we keep orientating our lives outwards, Our life's focal point gradually shifts from us to others. A transformation starts to occur. Pride ceases being an issue. But it's not because we're more humble, at least that we know, it's because we're more self-forgetful. And it's this, in Christ's eyes, that is greatness. Jesus says, the greatest among you is the one who serves. The greatest among you is the one who simply does something for someone else with no expectation of return. The greatest among you will not be the humblest or the most generous or the one who is thought of the best by most people. The greatest among you will be the servant of all, down in the shadows, quietly washing feet. And we can all do that. Therefore, in Christ's eyes, we can all be great self-forgetfulness is the route that arrives at humility but humility can never be our destination let me say that again self-forgetfulness is the route that arrives at humility but humility can never be our destination cs lewis puts it brilliantly he says this do not imagine you have to imagine him with a pipe in his mouth probably in a pub in Oxford, England, having a pint in his hand, and over his pipe he says these words. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all that you will think about him is that he seemed to be a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you, if, if you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. And C.S. Lewis goes on to say this. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And it's, it's a biggish step too. At least nothing nothing whatever can be done until that moment when you realize that you're proud. And if you think that you are not conceited, it means that you are very conceited Indeed. In the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, it says this. Philippians 4, verse 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learnt from and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And in this scripture, we should note that Paul moves straight away from talking about what fills our mind, which is the true, the honorable, the just and the pure, to putting these things into practice. Our thought life and our behavior are intimately linked. Our thought life is the fuel for our action. And and a a changed mind equals changed action. Just as changed action or behavior is an evidence of a changed mind and heart. So, meditating on Christ and his ultimate act of of service in dying on the cross leads us to a transformed life. Fixing our minds on the cross leads us to our own crossroads where we choose a life that's orientated to others and this is what leads to our humility. Comparing ourselves with others leads to pride but serving others leads to humility and the Pharisees forgot this. This wasn't a momentary slip up for them. This was a trajectory that their life was on. And it was a trajectory that would lead to to their destruction. James 4 verse 10 says this. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. But they were so, so busy and obsessed exalting themselves before others that it was not even on their radar to humble themselves in front of God. And if they ever did humble themselves in front of God, it would have been to make a big show in front of the watching people. At this party that Jesus was at, Jesus tells the story of another banquet, another feast in verse 12, and that's, that's uh, Luke chapter 14. And he says this in verse 12 of Luke 14, when, when, you, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed for they cannot repay you. And so this, this story is not just about how do we live a humble life, but it's also about what does the kingdom of heaven look like. And Jesus is saying that when God's kingdom comes in its fullness, we will be surprised at who makes it to the wedding feast. It will be the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. Those whose, whose illness, those whose Lameness is staring them in the face. Those who don't feel worthy. These are the ones who will be at the wedding feast of the kingdom of heaven. And so in my earlier example, those who are convinced that they're on the right-hand side of the line, those who think that they value themselves too much, who are proud, are actually closer in God's eyes to the left-hand side of the line. While those who are convinced that they are humble and are sure that they value themselves little, will be shocked to see that in God's eyes that there is considerable pride still present. And in my example of this week when my ego was bruised, it does not take much to see this monster of pride come bursting out like one of those extraterrestrials bursting out of Sigourney Weaver's stomach in the movie Alien. That's what pride is like. And so those who find themselves at the wedding feast won't be those who we see making a big deal of their righteousness or their humility here on earth. It won't be those who consider themselves humble. It will be those who know that they are not worthy. It will be those whom C.S. Lewis says knows that they are proud and are humbled in this knowledge and are actually sickened in this knowledge. Not those who are proud of their humility. It will be those who are truly humble C.J. C. Mahaney said, says this, that those who are humble are those who have honestly assessed themselves in the light of God's holiness and their sinfulness. And where does this honest assessment take place of, our, of God's holiness and our sinfulness? Well, there's only one place, at the foot of the cross. This is the only place and the only time where in, in history where God's holiness and our sinfulness came to coexist within the same person. Think about it. This is the one place where our sinful upgrading of ourselves met God's selfless downgrading of himself. It's where our pride and rebellion met God's humiliation. And this is the only place where our pride can be swallowed by God's love. Because God's love is the only thing that's large enough to envelop our pride, wrap it all around, and do something about it. Nothing else can. It's too big. It's too unwieldy. And so, to close, how do we best combat pride? It's not by seeking humility. It's by looking at Christ's broken body with the eyes of faith and mourning our deep-seated pride that put him there. It's in saying... And I'm going to quote from a hymn now, one of my favorite hymns. From my stricken heart with tears, two wonders I confess, the wonders of his glorious love and my own worthlessness. It's in saying, my sinful self, my only shame, my glory all, the cross. It's in living a self-forgetful life that's focused on serving others. I started this message with a limerick which went like this. There was... A man, there once was a man from Italy who wanted to practice humility, but he could not admit that he just couldn't quit being proud of his newfound ability. I'd like to end with a limerick as well. I once heard a Christian grumble. I have problems with being humble. I said, don't fixate on your failure. Fill your thoughts with your Savior. Serve others Then your pride will crumble. Then your pride will crumble. So a life of humility begins with meditating on the greatest servant of them all, the one example of true humility. And Philippians chapter 2, my last scripture, says this. Philippians 2 verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others have this mind among yourselves which is yours in christ jesus and that's saying that we can have a communal humility not just each of us individually but as a church we can be humble humble so let this have this mind among yourselves. Verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Note that, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross.